hockey fans, this is the Golden Edge Podcast, a podcast where the Las Vegas Review Journal talks about uh, hockey and specifically some big hockey events that happened in Las Vegas over the weekend. Uh, I am Ben Goats, one of your Review Journal Golden Knights beat writers. Joining me on the other line is my colleague, David Shane, to talk about some hockey and uh, a break that wasn't really a break for us, which is fine. But uh, Dave, how are you doing this fine Wednesday morning? Well, in the words of Pete DeBoer, I'm a little foggy. I'll be honest with you. So you know, we'll try to we'll try to get through this uh, this podcast the way that they did this weekend, right? How great was that, by the way? Oh, it's just fantastic. We're gonna get into uh, probably like Pete DeBoer's best press conference moment uh, as you know, a member of the Golden Knights. He said several, but just the beautiful honesty that uh, he had really. Most nice players and a lot of players had at uh, NHL All-Star Weekend just a couple days ago was fantastic. It was fun to kind of, uh, this doesn't really apply to Pete DeBoer, but uh, have a lot of players let their hair down, so to speak, in kind of, you know, a more relaxed, fun atmosphere. You know, you get Alex Petrangelo bringing uh, his son to the podium after winning a skills competition that we will also uh, dive into that was really fun. Uh, so obviously today's show we're recording before the night's game against the Calgary Flames today, but we have two big topics that we think supersede the game anyway. Where we're going to go over NHL All Star Weekend at T-Mobile Arena, uh, our highlights, lowlights, all that jazz, and of course we've got Big Jack Eichel news to break down as well. So I think that's going to be more than enough to fill a show. But before we get into all that, I just want to remind everyone that the Golden Edge Podcast is brought to you by the Las Vegas Review Journal. You can check out all our written work at reviewjournal.com. If you missed any of our all-star coverage from over the weekend, we actually have a tab on our website that you can click for all the stories we wrote about the night's players involved, kind of what happened, what this might mean for Las Vegas moving forward. It's all there. Uh, So please check that out. Uh, Also, we are presented by Blue Wire. And if you guys could rate, review, subscribe, whatever you do to podcast, please do to this one. Uh, we would very much appreciate it. All right, let's start with what happened just a few short weeks ago in Las Vegas, which already feels like forever ago because so much happened in the course of, you know, just a couple of days. Uh, so, yeah, the All-Star Game and the skills competition were in town. It was really cool. I hope everyone had a chance to either watch the events or check out the fanfare at Las Vegas Convention Center's West Hall because that was very fun. There's a lot of stuff going on as i already hinted at yeah the skills competition was friday alex petrangelo big winner won the breakaway challenge which we're definitely going to get into and then the knights guys in petrangelo mark stone jonathan march stone pete DeBoer, uh only lasted one round in the all-star game before bowing out uh, DeBoer started the three knights guys for the pacific division and they gave up a uh, goal to tom wilson in 13 seconds uh, it was It was was definitely a bit of a sad trombone moment for the crowd that just got like revved up after all those guys was introduced. But oh my gosh, so much happened. Uh, Dave, where do you want to start? Where what was the thing that kind of stuck out most to you from kind of having the NHL circus in town for a weekend? Okay, so I have to go back and circle back to the pizza boy reference at the top of the podcast. Because that was absolutely moment number one. Okay. But I want to be clear on this. Okay. This is not me making fun of Pete DeBoer. Like you got to hang or like there's actually two legitimate reasons 
why that stood out to me so much. One is that, like you said, that they he would let his hair down, so to speak, uh, obviously, <laughs> with Pete DeBoer, not literally, but that he would feel, you know, kind of his guard down and admit it and show some personality. Like, like Pete DeBoer has a lot of personality, you know, and, and a lot of these guys have a lot of personality. I thought it was a very cool moment to just, you know, have have him admit, like, yeah, we had fun. I had fun. I had a good time. <laughs> and I'm feeling it today. You know? Like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and this kind of goes to my other point, too, is sort of like it was Vegas, and it sounds like the players and the coaches and everybody had a really good time. I think Pete DeBoer even sort of alluded to maybe that that goal 13 seconds in might have had something to do with, you know, the night before and just everybody – you know, dragging a little tail and all that. But I, I just thought, you know, that moment and and sort of the realness of, hey, we're here for the All-Star game in Vegas and this is how it really is. I just thought it was really cool that Pete DeBoer actually would let us in sort of, you know, behind the scenes, I guess you could say a little bit with that. Yeah, I mean, for those who haven't exactly seen the specific reference yet. I believe it's on our Golden Edge uh, Twitter account, uh, the video. I mean, Pete DeBoer straight up said he got asked, you know, like, hey, did you see kind of all the pregame theatrics before the All-Star game? Because they had like dancing Elvises. They had a uh, dancing rap pack. There was the DJ Zed that was, you know, bumping up. There's, you know, honest projections going on. And so Pete DeBoer got asked, like, hey, were you taking all this in before the All-Star game? And Pete was like, nah. I'm pretty hungover. I'm going to be honest with you after last night. Like he said it. He said the exact words like I'm, you know, hungover, which was awesome. As you said, he was just seemed like so relaxed uh, the entire weekend, even at media day the day before, uh, which is before the skills competition. He was having a really fun time. I think the first question he got asked about, you know, after the all-star game where the Pacific division loses, you know, and he's obviously the coach up and he's like, oh, devastating loss you know just like kind of milking it it was it was so yeah uh funny to kind of watch him put on a show and like i said usually at the podium i'm even thinking back to last night where the knights beat the edmonton oilers pretty soundly to start off kind of the quote-unquote second half of their season it's not perfectly split into halves here but he's you know got his three-piece suit and he's just like so business-like about how he answers all these questions and is trying to say the right Thing. For the most part, every now and then he'll sneak in, you know, something funny or a little a bit of a quip or something. But he's got his kind of talking points prepared. And it was cool to see him admit that and see some players also kind of admit they were having fun. Uh, let's just say that uh, I think I noticed, Dave, that the fastest skater competition at Friday's skills competition was a little slower than it had been in years past. I could not for the life of me, point out a single reason why players might be dragging a little bit slower than usual, as you said. But that was uh, that was definitely a takeaway from the weekend. Yeah, I don't know if it was a slow track or the uh, the clock was a little off. But, it, you know, when you kind of have the benefit of hindsight and you put it all together, yeah, you know, maybe that had a little something to do with it. But, I mean, you know what? Hey, good on you. You never know. Like, you know, that's what it's all about, right? So... Absolutely. All right. So next, uh, let's move on to, I think, what I think was the highlight of the weekend, the entire program, really, uh, outside of 
the eventual winner, which we'll get into that. Uh, it's the breakaway challenge, which was basically like four young guys and Alex Petrangelo. They just kind of stuck him in there, which is fantastic. And so you have this whole like one-upmanship going on where, I mean, like it's a breakaway challenge, but basically no one actually like cared about the breakaways themselves. It was just an excuse to have all these players do different things where you start off and Kirill Kaprizov of the Minnesota Wild like skates away, takes off his Wild jersey. And oh my gosh, it's an Alex Ovechkin Capitals jersey because Ovechkin had to pull out of the event because he tested positive for COVID. You have Kaprizov, who is a lefty, use a right-handed stick because Ovechkin's a righty and he scores and he does Ovechkin's like hot stick celebration. And you're like, oh my gosh, like what showmanship? Like that's fantastic. Kaprizov's also skating away from Mark Chinook trying to interview him, which I don't know what the interview would have been like anyway, because I don't think Kaprizov speaks English very well. And so you're like, wow, fantastic. Can't wait to see how these other guys are going to possibly try to top that kind of surprise. And then Trevor Zegris comes out wearing an average Joe's jersey from the movie Dodgeball, gets blindfolded by John Gibson, which obviously is a critical point in the climax of that movie for anyone that's watched that instant classic, then does a crazy breakaway move while dodgeballs are being thrown at him with mascots, scores, does not even come close to winning the competition. You got Jack Hughes comes out, does a magic trick with like, brings out a box on the ice, spins it around, then a mini Jack Hughes comes out, scores. They both do his stick throwing into the crowd celebration. That's fantastic. You've got the hangover thing coming out where Alex Brick gets dressed like Zach Galifianakis. You've got a Mike Tyson impersonator dragging like a stuffed tiger uh, like animal, I assume. Derek Carr and Hunter Renfro are also there because why not? And so Derek Carr's tossing Alex Brick in a football and he's scoring with it. And then, of course, at the end, Alex Petrangelo comes out, misses, tries again, lights up a little, you know, Knights logo on his chest, has the drum bots come out, uh, misses Again, for the second time, he's 0 for 2 in the breakaway challenge. Still wins because John Hamm, who is, of course, a known to St. Louis Blues fan, uh, gives him a 19 out of 10 to honor the 2019 Stanley Cup win. And everyone's just like, sure. Everyone's just like, okay with it. Uh, despite the fact that the winner of this event gets $30,000, which is also just ridiculous. But with that much money on the line, everyone at the NHL is just like, yeah, this 19 out of 10 seems legal. And so Alex Petrangelo wins. Uh, it was just nuts, Dave. What was your reaction seeing all of this kind of just take place in front of our eyes at T-Mobile Arena? Because it was just like the most nuts, like 20 minutes of semi-hockey-related content I don't think I've ever seen. Okay, so there was so much to this, okay? So first off is Mike McKenna, former Golden Knights broadcaster, Happened to be in the building for All-Star Game. Mike McKenna was the goalie when Alex Ovechkin did the hot stick. So to like have Kirill Kaprizov do it and then have Mike McKenna in real time be, you know, like I'm assuming, I hope, like tongue-in-cheek kind of sarcastically. But I actually think there's a little bit of like, you know, maybe a little resentment. You know, but he's, you know, he's on like real time on Twitter. Like, yeah, thanks, you know, Kirill, real great or whatever, you know, like I just thought it was so it was so awesome to like have it all kind of, you know, happening right in front of us sort of, you know, like IRL, you know, um, the other aspect of this, too, that I actually think is fascinating 
is like the betting aspect of, okay, we had totally in, in, let me touch on this real quick too. The fact in the way that everything sort of embraced the Vegas theme and not everything came off and you know what? Hey, not everything does, but there was effort, you know, all the hangover stuff, the magic, like then you had the event of the Bellagio fountains and yeah, it was a little slow and it was tough and it was cold for the players, you know, but it, it was kind of cool. And especially when the fountains got going and then they had that, yeah, you know what? 21 and 22, I think they called it sort of the blackjack event, which I kind of thought would have been cool if the cards were turned around and you just shot randomly. And then you had to like, you know, figure out, are you going to hit? Are you going to play? Are you going to shoot again? Um, rather than just them aiming it, which it was cool to see them get all the way down and, you know, fire away. You can see how accurate they are. Um, but like the betting aspect of it, I think is fascinating because those two events that were done on the strip were recorded the night before. And I'm not a hundred percent sure if Vegas was part of this, but I definitely heard and saw, you know, that bets were being taken. I don't know if it was offshore, you know, on the winners of this. And like, again, to go back to like Petrangelo and all of this, I mean, Trevor Zegers does a move that people are going to be talking about, you know, that nine and 10 year old, you know, up and coming hockey players are going to be trying to emulate, you know, forever. And it doesn't win. Like there's some betting aspects to all of this too. Like that the NHL, I don't know if they fully considered. And I hope maybe if, if there was some complaints that they had some closed door meetings, like, you know, Hey, we're in Vegas. Like, let's talk about, there are a ton of sponsors and all of that, you know, this with the NHL now. So I just found it all like super fascinating and, and cool. And like I said, I, I thought it was great the way that a lot of the players and just, you know, the theme of Vegas was, was embraced throughout, you know, even right down to like, you know, Steve Stamkos's kid wanting to see the Zamboni. Like, that you know, even that was great. Yeah, because like, so you had yeah, kids hanging out on the benches where you yeah, had like Joe Pavelski's kids are down there. Patrice Bergeron's kids are down there. Petrangelo's got his triplets and his nephew there. Jonathan Marchessault's two kids are just hanging out on the ice in their hockey gear in the middle of the skills competition, like passing pucks to each other, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, the betting stuff is really interesting, especially because like, the NHL like never officially said that the you know the Bellagio Fountain event, which we could talk about in a second here, was pre-recorded, or that you know NHL 21 and 22 event. I mean, we all pretty much knew, you know, like it wasn't like that much of a guarded secret that those events were actually like recorded on Thursday. But there was never like an announcement from the NHL about like, hey, by the way, like we're not gonna like cut live to like the Bellagio fountains in like the middle of the skills competition where like, you know, Mark Stone and the rest of these players are just going to be hanging out there waiting for their turn. Uh, so I think that did probably affect, I think mainly some offshore bets. I'm sure there was plenty of, uh, especially because the NHL's official partners with some of these sports books that they kind of knew what was up and didn't want to uh, get that involved. I also would uh, highly recommend anyone that was willing to, uh, bet significant sums of money on the NHL skills competition to maybe, you know, take a step back, think about some things. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, that would also be my advice for anyone who's concerned about the integrity of the NHL skills competition. Um, but obviously one of the most Vegasy things they did, because so much of this, you know, weekend was Vegasy, and then the NHL kind of embracing Vegas. I think that's something that the players and the people that participated really loved. They had the 
Huge Bellagio Fountain event, the uh, Fountain Face-Off that Mark Stone participated in didn't do very well. I think didn't like officially finish, but he kind of just thought he was done and he like was not going to win. So they're just like, yeah, sure, he's done. Um, and then the NHL 21 and 22, where they got to shoot at kind of this giant deck of cards. What were your kind of thoughts on each of those events, Dave? And just the NHL trying, trying some different stuff, it felt like, uh, this time around. Yeah, I think so. The, the 21 and 22, like I said, I would have preferred if they did it blindly, like if you couldn't see the cards, you know, if you just shot and then it flipped around and then you saw what your hand was and then you decided, OK, I'm going to shoot again. I'm going to hit, you know, because then if you get like 12, you know, OK, I might randomly get a face card like it's more a little bit more like blackjack. This way was more like a shooting contest where they were just kind of like picking out the cards and the and the target that they wanted to go for and. You know, like Pavelski was right down in the suit. Oh, I got the ace of diamonds. Well, let me shoot at the king of diamonds here. I'll pick that off. No problem. Like, I mean, it's psycho how how like accurate some of those guys are, you know, and they're out there freezing, too. That's the other side. Like they're out there shivering and whatever. And they're still just, you know, calling their shot. Um, I thought it was cool. And then like I, like I thought the the fountain thing was was great. I love the scenery. I love the idea behind it. Um it just always feels like every time the NHL puts some sort of like obstacle course kind of weird sort of thing in there that it ends up either just being like too hard or like somebody takes forever or it just like it doesn't quite work. Um, I remember a few years ago, there was some weird kind of like skills obstacle thing. You had to like lift the puck and like flip it through these, you know, kind of like slots and whatever. And like Johnny Gaudreau was like the only one that could do it and everybody else like fumbled and bumbled through it. And that's the hard part when you're watching it. You want to see it done well. You know, you don't want to see somebody, you know, like struggle at it. It's an all-star game and and you want it to go quickly. Like that's the other thing too. You know, we all have short attention spans, right? And so when it starts to drag, um, one of the things I saw or heard was as that 21 and 22 was going on and they were doing the tiebreaker. So they went like from like whatever and then down to like the queen. Like they actually, I guess, cut out that they hit the Kings first and then went to the Queens. So like, it just takes a while. And it, you know, when you're doing live TV and, and all of that, like you just never know. So I wish, I don't want to, I don't want them to make it easy, but something that they can like get through quicker feels like it's always the, the, the major flaw in these, these skills competition. There's like one event that, that sort of drags everything down time-wise. Yeah, definitely. So I'm curious. Obviously, you know, the NHL is not necessarily coming back to Las Vegas anytime soon, but I hope they continue to kind of experiment with stuff like this. Um, I don't think the event they came up with for the Fountain Faceoff was necessarily perfect, but just the scenery was just incredible as you're just like all these, you know, just shots of Zach Gorinsky just kind of like standing on the Bellagio Fountain, like with his gloves on a stick and he's got, you know, water just like gushing up in huge towers behind him. And you're like, Oh, that's just incredible, amazing stuff that you could only get in Las Vegas. So I thought the backdrop in the scenery was really cool. The event wasn't perfect, but I think it still was a cool way to kind of mix up the show. Um, and so the last thing I want to talk about before we move on to, uh, our other topic of the day is just the fact that uh, we've mentioned it before, but we haven't like really discussed is that the fact that Jonathan Marshall soap was there, uh, which obviously the last time we were recording, we were kind of previewing what was going to happen 
during All-Star Weekend. Uh, we didn't know that he was going to be there. He was a late addition to the Pacific Division roster. He was actually in Cabo vacationing with his family and basically got the call saying, uh, hey, you've been added. Do you want to come back? And to Jonathan Marchessault's credit, I respect this so much. He said, yes, I will come back, but not right now. And he spent two extra nights in Cabo to at least kind of squeeze in that vacation with his family. And then he flew back, got into Las Vegas kind of like uh, Friday morning, Friday afternoon, was there in time for the skills competition and everything because that didn't start till 4.30, uh, and then participated. And, you know, Mark Stone kind of talked about how cool it was to have kind of an original member of the Knights be involved in kind of this momentous event for uh, the city and the franchise that they're hosting this major midseason NHL event. So what was it like for you, Dave, to kind of see Marcheseau's journey in terms of, you know, obviously not making it via the last minute in voting, then making it kind of last minute week of getting there from Cabo and then being able to take part in kind of all the events that were happening around this weekend. Yeah, I think it was Pete DeBoer who had mentioned, and I think even Jonathan Marshall himself acknowledged, you know, that it means a little bit more for a guy like him to to be in an all-star game. You know, he's not a perennial, you know, point per game score. You know, he's not a guy that, you know, is on the highlights all the time. And, and he's not a guy probably that, you know, let's be realistic, you know, would have a, you know, maybe another real shot at this. And, you know, I think I saw a reporter too that, you know, there was some worry that one of the other Pacific Division players was going to test positive for COVID and it didn't happen. And that's why Marchessault was added. But regardless, I thought it was, I don't, I don't know what the right word, maybe fitting. I'll, I'll say fitting is the right word, that he was the last one introduced. It wasn't Mark Stone, the captain. And and I wonder maybe if behind the scenes, you know, Mark Stone, you know, maybe did a wink, wink, nod, nod, or if it was by number, I don't, I don't know. But, you know, the fact that Marchessa was the last one introduced, the fact that he got the big ovation, you know, I, I don't, I, I think there was like a weird kind of stat with this, or I don't know if it's stat or fact, but, you know, like all of the other Golden Knights that have made all-star games, like none of them were an original misfit that hadn't been to an all-star game you know like flurry had been you know, like james neal had been like for so for him to just go and and soak it in for it to be you know at home for for it to be you know something that the fans can celebrate like he scored a goal he nearly scored another one at the end and you know yeah he joked that you know maybe they gave it to him in stone and then oh, that's fine but like that's what all-star games are for. But, you know, that, that's sort of like it's a celebration of guys like that. Like, it's great to see McDavid and Dreisaitl and, you know, Mark Stone and Petrangelo and, you know, all the other stars that that we normally see. But, you know, when a guy like Jonathan March so has a good year and hits 20 goals, you know, be, before the all-star break and, and you can reward him and like the look on his face when he scored and you could just see like almost like holy bleep, like I just scored an all-star game. And he kind of, you know... I don't know. Like it's funny. I think they're never going to hear the end of it. Like Trangelo and Stone were sort of joking about that, but yeah, I just I thought it was a good moment, and I I thought especially for the fans, and you know, it was a good ad for the NHL to sort of acknowledge and and recognize that you know a misfit needed to to be in this game if they could get him in. No, for sure. And obviously, yeah, Marshall so 
I mean, undrafted guys spent parts of six seasons in the American Hockey League. I think everyone knows, you know, not exactly the uh, physical profile in terms of, you know, what a lot of NHL teams look for. I mean, he's 5'9". He gets made fun of it or made fun of for it all the time, but is obviously a very, very good hockey player. And so it's kind of cool um, for him to kind of get that acknowledgement of how far he's come. Um, I know talking to him uh, Friday kind of afternoon before the skills competition. Yeah. He had kind of mentioned like a lot of people didn't even think I was going to have a pro career, you know, just based on kind of my physical profile. So the fact that I made it to an all-star game, I think was pretty meaningful for him. And obviously the fact, I think he was very grateful that he got to bring his family to and have his kids around and everything like that. Um, so overall, very cool and exciting weekend for uh, the Golden Knights in the NHL and the city of Las Vegas here. But now we're going to turn the page onto something that's kind of the next pressing topic for the Golden Knights. And that's the fact that, uh, and Pete DeBoer hinted at this at his All-Star uh, Weekend Media Day availability, that Jack Eichel has now been cleared for contact in the Knights' first practice post all-Star break on Monday. He was just there in a normal jersey. No more non-contact. He is ready to kind of take the next step in his recovery. And that was always kind of thought of, you know, him getting cleared for contact was going to be the step that would potentially take the longest once he, you know, was recovering from this artificial uh, disc replacement surgery in his neck. So now it's like getting to the point where, you know, like I don't think he's obviously playing tonight as we record this against the Calgary Flames. But afterwards, the Knights have a week off between games where they don't play again until February 16th. And so with another week, you know, it feels like, hey, that's kind of starting to approach territory where Jack Eichel playing for the Golden Knights begins to kind of feel like a realistic possibility in the near future. And uh, because of that, that also means that we are heading toward this Golden Knights cap crunch that we have been alluding to, talking about a little bit for quite a while here since he was traded for in November. But now, you know, the kind of uh, sword is actually, it feels like pretty close to swinging at this point. And Dave, I know you've actually talked to some cap uh, people about this recently, about what kind of exactly the Golden Knights are staring at here, about what kind of their options are. So uh, we know Jack Eichel has a $10 million cap hit that is currently on long-term injured reserve. We know the Knights, uh, as of right now, with all the people that they have on their roster, are a little bit more than $10 million over the cap uh, money-wise, but they have Eichel on long-term injured reserve and Alec Martinez on long-term injured reserve as he kind of, it seems like, is recovering from some COVID long-haul symptoms. So what are kind of the Knights staring at here as they try to untangle, you know, this puzzle of how they get Jack Eichel onto their active roster while being cap compliant at the same time? <laughs> yeah, you're going to try to have me explain all this math, aren't you? And I'm just going to butcher this. Um yeah, so I'm going to I can preview this. I'm going to hopefully have a story out, you know, later this week that everybody can check out reviewjournal.com. Um I mean, essentially, so part of this depends on sort of Martinez and Eichel and are they both, you know, being activated at the same time or is it just one or whatever? Like 
so without getting like too much into the numbers, and obviously I have to try to do some math here, like basically what you're talking about is they have to clear somewhere in the neighborhood of about 5.1 million to activate just Jack Eichel. And then if you're talking for both of them, you're talking about like 10.36 million, I think was the calculation um, to clear both of them. So the way that that works is like, essentially it was explained to me that they can use a long-term IR pool. They can exceed the cap by up to 15.2 million. They're only exceeding it by like 10.3. So that gives them like 4.8-ish, 8.95, I think was the number of room that they already have sort of like, you know, to use. So that that's why they don't have to clear like the full 10 million if they wanted to activate Eichel. But for both, then yeah, you're talking 10 million-ish um, and a little bit more. So there's some ways to do it you know, with like some reassignments of, you know, trying to get some guys maybe through waivers, um, which they're going to have to try to do, or, you know, potentially if they feel like they're going to lose those guys, then to, you know, try to work out some trades maybe for, for some of those depth guys. But, you know, reality is, and this is, this is the bottom line and what it was, you know, explained to me is like, there's pretty much no other way around this other than to trade a significant contract, you know? So somebody in that, say, $5 million range, you know, and then try to figure out some ways around it, you know, with some reassignments, maybe, you know, arranging some long-term IR stuff and, you know, some things like that. But yeah, right now it looks like whatever happens that that somebody, that there's going to be at least one significant piece that has to be on the way out. Yeah, because... As you kind of hinted at there, there are ways for the Knights to potentially trim around the margins with guys to especially get maybe that 10 million uh, figure a little bit lower, but they're going to need some, at least one player, if not multiple, to take a significant chunk out of that because they have accumulated some kind of depth pieces throughout the season when they were really hurting through injuries. So you think of a guy like Ben Hutton has kind of been their fill-in defenseman, and has actually played really well for them. He got moved up to the first pair with Alex Petrangelo last night, actually, with Nick Haig, you know, kind of being a little bit slow, Pete DeBoer said, understandably coming off an injury and an all-star break. So you could say, like, hey, we picked up Ben Hutton in the middle of the season for essentially nothing. He was just kind of a straight free agent. So why don't we just, you know, put him back on the street, potentially, which is obviously harsh, but... Uh, that way we clear up some money. He only makes $750,000 against the Caps. You're not doing that much there. Same with like a guy like Michael Amadio, who they picked up on waivers. He makes seven fifty two, dollars And plus, Michael Amadio did sign an extension uh, not too long ago with the Golden Knights, which I think at least hints that they would like to see him stick around a little bit. So in terms of kind of, you know, significant guys that you could move i mean we're talking about um there are some unlikely guys like you know like max Pacioretty makes seven million dollars that obviously feels very unlikely and he has a 10 million dollar team no trade but throwing them out there just in case i mean there are certain guys like mark stone and alex petrangelo have full no move clauses so that's not necessarily a possibility i feel like martinez has been tossed out because he's been hurt most this year but the knights just signed him to that three-year extension before this season He's got a 16-team no-trade list. I have a hard time seeing 
uh, that happening. And then Marshall, we just talked about as an all-star, kind of fits the financial range as well. It's $5 million. He has an eight-team no-trade list. But based on you know his production, what he's meant to the organization, the fact that, like I said, he was just an all-star, he seems pretty unlikely. So some of the other guys that you can talk about is maybe more realistic is like because you have a new potentially number one center in in Jack Eichel does William Carlson enter the picture he's got a 5.9 million dollar cap hit and a 10 team no trade list maybe just because you know trading top six centers is not a thing that uh, teams rarely or teams do very often ironically because the Golden Knights just acquired one um, doesn't seem likely Riley Smith I think is the guy that a lot of us are pointing as out as kind of you know a guy that makes sense just because he makes five million dollars against the cap he's a pending unrestricted free agent meaning the knights are as of right now still at risk for losing him this offseason anyway and plus they just locked down one of their pending unrestricted free agents in Braden mcnab and so they made sure like hey we want to keep this guy around they did not do the same with Riley Smith. Uh, Evgeny Dodonov, who they acquired in a trade this offseason, also makes $5 million, has a 10-team no-trade list. So he's on, I think, the potentials as well. And then for guys that make less but could help you chip away, you know, we've talked about they just extended Logan Thompson. So is Laurent Brassois and his uh, $2.3 million cap hit an option. Maybe he is just coming off a shutout last night against the Oilers. So that... Uh, might have been an emphatic performance for him saying he wants to stay. Got Matias Yanmark, pending unrestricted free agent, $2 million. William Carrier's got a long, you know, term-ish deal, uh, $1.4 million cap hit that goes for uh, this season and two more afterward. And then they got Nolan Patrick this offseason in a trade, and he's signed for $1.2 million. Like I said, all those guys are making a little bit so they could be potentially kind of extras thrown in the trade to help the Knights get closer to the number. Um, it is worth pointing out if you include Eichel and Martinez, the Knights are at 15 forwards, eight defensemen, and two goalies. So two guys need to go anyway to get them to the 23-man roster limit. It'll just be interesting to see if they choose to go, okay, we're going to get rid of two guys, which means we potentially need to get rid of two more significant salaries to make this work or are they going to try to get rid of three and four guys and maybe have only kind of one headliner piece leave and then a couple depth guys also move out there's a lot of ways that they could potentially do this Dave yeah you want to write the story for me because you just explained it better than I can I mean yeah that's exactly it there's there's a lot of different ways there's a lot of different you know there's a lot of different ways you can cut the cake you know cut a pizza like whatever stupid analogy i'm i'm trying to come up with here um i i think you know again the reality is like to get both of them in there like the numbers really only work with like it probably at least one big bigger contract you know i think and this is just me talking i think after everything with the summer after all of the blowback with the flurry trade the reeves trade and sort of you know, at the start of the season, the way, you know, the fans sort of I, you know, revolted is way too strong a word. But, you know, certainly let their uh, anger be known at, at the way the front office has maybe done some things. I think it would be hard for them to sell losing Riley Smith or moving Riley Smith, at least at this point. If he were to move on as a free agent in the offseason, the same way that James Neal did, the same way that David Perron did after 
you know, a playoff run. I think that then, you know, from a PR standpoint, the Knights can sell that a lot easier, you know. But right now, like if you're going to trade somebody, if you're going to have to like stand up in front of all of us, in front of the fans and explain it the way that Kelly McCrimmon's going to have to do, it's probably easier to trade to Donoff, right? And like his five million and then figure out a way to do some other stuff. Um, one of the things, one of the scenarios that I asked about when I, you know, kind of talked to the, the experts about this was, you know, the Knights picking up another long-term IR contract and what benefit does that do? And the way it was, it was explained to me is the only benefit is if they say hypothetically send out that $5 million contract to get that long-term IR contract in return. You know, if there's a team that say doesn't want to pay, you know, the remaining, you know, one point whatever on say a $6.85 million contract or whatever it might be. I'm using Ryan Kessler's numbers as an example. Um, you know, then maybe, maybe that other team sees a benefit in saying, Hey, if you're going to, if you bill Foley are going to pay this guy's salary, you know, well, maybe it, maybe it makes a, a little easier for the Knights to, to negotiate on this. Cause here's the other side of this too. Every other team, 31 teams in this league, know that the Golden Knights are negotiating from like absolutely no leverage, right? Everybody knows that they have to make a trade. Everybody knows that they have to do this. They, they can't dangle somebody at the trade deadline or whatever and go, Ooh, well, you know, this guy was a first round pick. So we want a first round pick for him. You know, that they have no leverage in this situation. So if they're trying to maximize any sort of position that, that they have, the Knights I'm referring to, you know, then they're going to have to get creative. There, there's different ways, you know, for them to do it. But I think in the most logical and, and the scenario that was presented to me as the most likely is something of that $5 million type contract, you know, a bigger contract with, you know, some other guys around the edges, you know, being reassigned, being traded, you know, going through waivers, whatever it might be. All right. Well, we'll have to obviously see what ends up happening there, but that's really interesting. Like you said, there's a lot of different ways they can do it. And especially it'll be fascinating to see how they approach this one, because we're talking about, you know, the NHL trade deadline just for people um, that are not aware, haven't been necessarily paying attention because of the ninth. It's probably not going to be that exciting of a time this year because of their kind of cap crunch uh the nhl trade deadline isn't till march 21st so when we talk about the knights potentially not having leverage what we mean is that uh all these other teams that the knights are potentially dealing with are going to say to them like look like we don't have to make a move right now we can wait out sift through offers and decide you know in a month plus potentially what we're going to end up doing to benefit our team if you want us to make a move now and kind of lock this in because you need to get jack eichel in the lineup well, we're not paying as much for that because we would prefer, obviously, to wait and assess all our options later on. And so that's why I think um, we're looking at a framework of kind of like what probably happened with Nate Schmidt and Paul Stasny, which is those are also two trades where the Knights uh, tried to explore trading for Mark Andre or trading Mark Andre Fleury uh, before his Vesna season, couldn't do it. Still wanted to bring in Alex Petrangelo and instead, I believe, sent out Stasny for a fourth 
to the Winnipeg Jets and Nate Schmidt for a third to the Vancouver Canucks. And now they're ironically both on the Winnipeg Jets. So that's what you're potentially looking at. And that's uh, what I think would make it interesting as you brought up, Dave, whether Kelly McCurman can sell that. Uh, can you sell losing an original member of your team uh, in terms of Riley Smith and a guy that's on a line literally called the misfit line for, you know, like a third round pick um, for a guy that's a proven top six forward. And that almost certainly will, you know, get another nice deal this off season. Uh, we'll see. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I'm sure they've obviously talked about various scenarios in the months leading up to this. And now, like I said, it seems like it's finally about to come to a head, at least in the somewhat near future. Who knows? Next time we get together to talk on this podcast, maybe we will have trades to break down. Maybe Jack Eichel will still need a little bit more time to get back. But that's something now that uh, is real and feels like it should be on all our radars. So that's something just for everyone to keep in mind, and hopefully that little breakdown help people understand where the Golden Knights are at. So we'll leave that there for now. That's going to do it for this edition of the Golden Edge podcast. As a reminder, we are brought to you by the Las Vegas Review Journal. Check out all our written work at ReviewJournal.com, including the story that Dave's going to write that we just previewed there. Uh, we are also presented by Blue Wire. And if you guys could rate, review, subscribe, whatever you do podcast, please do to this one. We would very much Appreciate it. Uh, I'm Ben Goats. He's David Shane. We are the Golden Edge Podcast. We'll talk to you guys again real soon.